Views, information, or opinions expressed in the following podcast are solely the views of the individuals involved and do not represent the views of any third party. Any information provided is of a general nature only and does not take into account your objectives, financial situation, or needs. In particular, you should seek financial advice prior to making a decision. Morning, Joseph. It's great to spend some time with you again. It's been a week or so since we last caught up and... Um, I wouldn't mind revisiting some of last week's developments, both nationally and globally. But first, uh, one of you can share anything in particular that's caught your attention over the last week. Well, I, I think the, globally, the restrictions that have been in place, even in countries that seem to, to still be in the eye of the storm. I mean, the United States, for example, some parts of Europe. So there's a real a real move now to try try to get back to some uh, back on the journey if you will to some degree of normality and, and some of that uh, just from where we're sitting in Australia some of it looks premature um, but it, it, at least the the positive intent is there uh, domestically clearly things continue to improve on, on COVID-19 uh, and I think increasingly people are questioning the uh, pace with which some states not all states, but some states are uh, embracing the idea that we've got to start getting society and the economy back on uh, on some um, source, some foundation of normality. So that's good. It's we do feel that um, that things are improving quite a bit, and, and certainly, you know, in Sydney, for example, and Brisbane too, there's a lot more activity in places where. There wasn't a lot of activity a few weeks ago, so we're on. We can see the light at the end of the tunnel, I think, uh, in uh, globally, which is good. Uh, I might go there for a moment if I can globally and just get your thoughts uh, on the latest trade tensions with uh, between America and China, and then China and Australia. Obviously, there's um, been a lot of posturing, but uh, I'm interested to understand uh, your views on uh, how that plays out over the, the coming weeks and months. Well, it's it's a big concern. I mean, I, I think that uh, there's no question that having, uh, you know, this, the geopolitical tensions between two of the world's great superpowers, the US and, and China, uh, is not good for anybody. And uh, and also, of course, the fact that Australia has been caught up in that. But there, there's a risk that the politics can get to a level that it starts to damage uh, what, are, what has been a very a beneficial trade relationship between China, between Australia and China, over a number of years, and I, I just don't see that it's in Australia's interest to get to get to allow that to deteriorate from the quite serious position that it's in today. But it, the reason why I say it's very serious is that because we're also in a world um, that is becoming increasingly more nationalistic uh, and and walking away from a world that. that up until recent times, had been very committed to globalization, and we'd all benefited from the the fruits of globalization. All countries have benefited from that, and and a step away from globalization, uh, back to a much more nationalistic approach to industry and supply chains. Um, it seems inevitably to be one of the consequences of COVID-19. It was a trend that was in place. Uh, in play before COVID-19, but COVID-19 has really exacerbated that, and 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 that's uh, an an issue. I mean, we've seen 
in the last couple of weeks, announcements by the Chinese on embargoes or tariffs um, uh, affecting product out of Australia. Uh, you would not want to see that spreading much beyond where, it, where it's at today. Um, but equally, you can't discount the prospect that if, if the political relationship continues to deteriorate, that some form of retaliation, if you will, by um, by China is 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 a real prospect, which would be damaging for us, and therefore is not something we want to see um, happen. Uh, and hopefully, therefore, that the political tensions that are obvious to us um, are being mitigated by more diplomatic approaches behind the scenes. And let's hope that that's happening. Staying on that theme for a moment and fast forwarding, assuming that uh, we do have issues with China, what, what's some of Australia's options about, what, what are some of the available options we've got as a, Australian uh, SMEs we should be thinking about? Oh, I think obviously trading relationships with other parts of the world. I mean, I think let's take Britain, for example, given that its, its decision to exit the European community, Brexit, allows the, the British market to open up um, in a much greater way than has been the case over the last number of decades because of the European community. So uh, given cultural ties um, and economic necessities, I think the prospect of growing our trade with, with the UK is one option. Um, the relationships with the United States remain very strong, so greater focus on the on the very large United States market. Uh, for some, you know, for for products like agricultural products, like uh, wines, and other things that um, that cha- that we, we do we excel in, uh, the Japanese market, of course, for a lot of our fishery. Um, so I think there are other options, but the reality is that that China represents. 20% of the world population, uh, even in a, a somewhat more subdued economic environment, it, it will still be growing at two or three times the world economy. So it's very hard to replace China as a as such an, as trade partner. You can diversify it and build really stronger trade relationships with other parts of the world, but it's very hard to imagine that any any other sets of relationships can get close to compensating for any loss, a meaningful loss of trade with China. So I don't like to go there in terms of thinking. I mean, I, I do feel it's important that, that we do build stronger ties, I think, with the, with the UK and the United States um, and work hard at repairing um, the, the relationships with China so that we don't lose more of that export market. That's great, Joseph. If I shift gears for a moment and um, we, we talked about nationalisation before shift away from globalisation. Very keen on your views and the role that organisations such as the World Trade Organisation, the World Health Organisation play going forward, given uh, where we find ourselves at the moment. Well, the World Trade Organisation is going to struggle, I think, uh, to regain anything like the the role that it once played. And that, that was happening before COVID because of the unilateral stance taken by the United States. And also the, the criticism made by a number of countries about the degree to which China was conforming with the rules applicable to uh, being a member of the World Trade Organization. So I think what we're looking at with the World Trade Organization is an institution in decline. 
And the World Health Organization, on the other hand, um, that's going to be really interesting. I mean, it, it is it has come up for some real criticism as a result of COVID-19, particularly from the United States. Uh, some of the early advice that came out of the World Health Organization uh, has proven to be quite bad advice. I mean, it's easy with hindsight to say that, but they, for example, uh, were not raising any concerns about cross-border travel um, when some people were saying that this is a big issue. And the, and the Americans have criticized them for being too pro-Chinese, uh, whether that's true. The irony, however, is that events like COVID-19 and Ebola before that and SARS before that really do underline the importance of having an institution that looks at health globally and coordinates across nations and trans and ensures best practice and research is, is optimised. So whilst the World Health Organization is on the back foot right now, the need for an institution like the World Health Organization has arguably never been greater. That's great, Joseph. You touched on before uh, the role uh, of other countries in Australia's trade partnerships. One of the, one of the regions you talked about was Europe and the UK. Where do you see the role of uh, the EU going forward and the changes in that organisation for, I guess, the global economy? Yeah, great question. I mean, as with as with the World Trade Organisation, the IMF, uh, a, a whole range of other institutions that were really a product of the post-Second World War reconstruction of uh, Europe and of the prominence of the United States, the IMF being another example, of the prominence of the United States as the kind of a global leader. And these institutions, um, those that I mentioned and others, played a big role in, in, in the economy and society of a whole range of nations since the Second World War. There is a growing school of thought that, that uh, the COVID-19, not, not just COVID, not because of COVID-19, but COVID-19 has, has caused people to reflect on a whole range of things that we've taken for granted, globalization being a case in point, that, um, that people will raise questions about whether these ideas are still valid uh, going forward. Um, and, the, and, and, and Europe, the European Union is very much in that, in that category. I mean, with Britain exiting Europe, and Europe was, the European Union, of course, was a classic example of post-Second World War big thinking about the creation of a common union, common currency. COVID-19 has really brought this to the forefront, is that union is quite fragile in certain places. I don't think the Italians, for example, were particularly enamoured by the way that their um, partners in Europe helped them or, or failed to help them at the onslaught of, onslaught of the crisis. Um, every, every nation in Europe, every nation, essentially every developed nation around the world, will come out of COVID-19 with a level of debt, uh, unpre unprecedented levels of debt, and that'll vary across country. And, and what's going to happen is that countries are going to need to look at more um, domestic levers to control and manage their economies as they try to repair the economic damage caused by COVID-19. And that, and that, and there'll be a lot of pressure for that to be done within the within the construct of a nation rather than the construct of a union of nations. Because every nation, of course, is, will be in a different place. It's, uh, Southern Europe 
uh, much weaker than Northern Europe. The Germans, as has often been the case with Germany to their credit, seem to have managed this remarkably well. But that is not true in many countries in Southern Europe. So I, I think it'll act as a catalyst for a review of the whole purpose of the European Union. Momentum behind that was already in the system. And, it, and that's a key theme here that I think that COVID-19 will act as the catalyst to deal with issues that were kind of lingering, uh, but not really front of mind for many uh, leaders. Um, but COVID-19, I think, provides the, the classic context for some major reform um, at, at the macro level, at geopolitical and geopolitical relationships, uh, and and in industries and in businesses. I mean, any business that thinks that the world is going to be the same post COVID-19 is not facing a reality and is and is potentially missing a big opportunity. So th there's a lot that we're going to see going forward. I mean, the, the things that we know for certain going forward. Uh, we know that governments are going to be a lot bigger than they've been. Uh, the government's going to be a much bigger part of virtually every developed economy than, than has been the case since the Second World War. And that there's going to be a requirement for a new social contract, to use that term, between government, business uh, and institutions, including the labour market. And, and um, there's going to be significant change, uh, hopefully, change for the good, but it, it, we all know about things that have been, you know, targets for change, but in the too hard basket for too long, uh, and have just been kicked down, kicked, kicked down the road. But I think we'll see that a lot of this, a lot of these issues will be faced into now um, as a result of COVID-19. Couldn't agree more. And uh, if I take one of the points there, you and I spoke about it last time we caught up, the, the, huge levels of debt the government's taking on globally to get through this period. If I look at Australia, uh, we're doing the same. We've done a fantastic job to date of ensuring that where we can, the country continues um, to, to operate and run appropriately. In terms of that debt position of Australia, though, there was obviously some uh, good news this week, if we look at it that way, and that there was a, a small error of $60 billion in the JobKeeper program. Um, does that give us the opportunity to, uh, I guess, reallocate those funds to the uh, the Australian economy and help uh, SMEs in particular, you know, get back to work and get their people back to work? And if so, how do you see that playing out? Yeah, great question. I mean, it's nice when a, a mistake or an error bounces in your direction. That's not that's not normally the case. Doesn't happen often. <laughs> But that was a big number, but it, it did bounce in our direction, which is which is good. Um, and obviously, because the government had, in its own mental model, said that that 60 billion was was spent or had been allocated, uh, it does create the option now, and I emphasise option, to reallocate it for something else. Uh, and and that something else is really being uh, how 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 do we make sure coming out of COVID-19 that critical parts of the economy uh, get a, a support that they need. And, and let me just use an example of where I think that that might be quite important. And that's in, in the in the SME economy, to use that term, 
a lot of small and mid-sized businesses have, have been forced to take on uh, a higher level of debt because of COVID-19 than they would have otherwise uh, have contemplated, whether that's capitalization of interest and, rep- and, and principal repayment or it's new lending in order to get through COVID-19. When we come out of COVID-19, um, we're obviously going to have an economy that's that's going to be softer than the economy that we had coming into COVID-19. It'll take at least a year, if not longer, to get back to any any degree of equivalent normality pre-COVID-19. Um, but a lot of small businesses are going to be encumbered with debt that they uh, makes it difficult for them to grow, um, actually make it difficult for some of them to survive. Uh, and given that this was not something that uh, small businesses consciously contemplated but were forced to accept, there is a there is a role, I believe, for government to say, ask itself, what do we, what can we do to help those small businesses uh, not feel themselves suffocated by higher levels of debt, but have a capital structure that allows them to uh, grow and invest in their businesses and, and get and help contribute to the economy, the economy's recovery. My big fear is that all of this COVID-19 debt, to use that term, is largely unproductive debt. It's there to just you know get businesses through, and it'll it'll crowd out the potential for new debt to invest and grow. Uh, and the solution here really is equity, not debt, you know, because if, in many ways, the COVID-19 debt is loss, it's debt to cover losses or expenses rather than to grow the company, the businesses, and it has more equity characteristics than debt characteristics. So how can we develop an equity solution that allows uh, small businesses to recapitalize the balance sheets, but also make sure that small business owners retain control of their businesses rather than giving away controlling interest. This is this is quite a serious and quite a big problem, but it's a problem that can be solved. And, and I hope some of that $60 billion um, dollars that we've talked about uh, might be allocated to help solve this problem of overly indebted small businesses uh, post-COVID-19 uh, it, that are, find themselves in a position for reasons uh, outside their control, uh, but re- requiring you know some big ideas, some big thinking, and bold leadership from the government. So that, that, that's one example, and I think very important example of how that sixty, some of that sixty billion could be spent. Well said, Joseph. I think a lot depends on, uh, or coming out of this, a lot depends on the, the state and federal governments working together. Each of the states also has high debt levels. You know, if I think of Queensland, for example, their their state debt levels are getting up towards $100 billion, which is a huge amount. There are options that they have available to them, but with the current political, if I, if I call it, bickering going on, how do we come together as a, as a country, both federal and state governments, um, to get through this political infighting? Uh, and then secondly, is the answer to the debt problem increase in taxes? And if so, how does that work given as a nation we've got one of the, the, the highest tax rates globally? Yeah. Well, a lot of questions there, sorry. Yeah, I mean, this is the huge dilemma. I mean, 
so we know we know that we're going to come out of COVID-19 with a higher level of debt at the national level and at the state level. We also know that we're, we're coming out into a much softer economy um, that's going to require more investment. It's almost like whether you're at, at federal government, state government, local government, uh, you, it's almost like John Maynard Keynes is sitting in the room saying we've got to spend, um, the government's got to be spending to help get the economy back together again. So th- that therefore leads to another certainty, I think, and that is that we're going to be moving uh, into a world of even higher taxation than the one that we're in today, which is, of course is not good news for anybody. But but it's hard to see a way out of this predicament uh, over the course of the next decade. Hopefully over time, economic growth gets you out of this and some inflation is helpful along the way. But if you were being realistic about options, the next five years, maybe 10 years, there's going to be a world where taxes, whether direct or indirect taxes, are going to be a much higher percentage of GDP than than they have been for a very, very, very long time. Hard to see any way out of that. I mean, you you keep searching for silver bullets, don't see them anywhere. Um, you know, you've got to those that debt levels have got to be repaid at some extent, at some point rather. Over time, growth helps a lot, as does inflation. But in the meantime, ta- the pressure is going to be on taxation. What's your view in infrastructure? So, traditional role of governments is to uh, build infrastructure assets, get yep. them operational. And then privatise, sell them to the corporate sector. So to, to use a comment you you talked about before is this feels like an equity problem, not a debt problem. That's one way to shift the debt from government's balance sheets onto the corporate balance sheets. Yep. Um, now, assets are run predominantly by the individual states, and the, apart from one or two states, there's been no propensity to go down that pathway. Do you see that as an option going forward? realistically, given the political environment? Well, you would like to believe that it could be an option. I mean, I think one of the things that people will be thinking about post-COVID-19 is just the the farcical nature of the disconnect between federal government and state governments. I mean, it's, it's very unimpressive. Um, it, it almost feels like the prime minister was, is quite, was quite impotent in, the, in many ways that he he and his senior people could form a view uh, on how we might get out of COVID-19 or, or key decisions and then find himself being second-guessed and, and argued against um, by different states. And, and some of it, some of the quality of the debate from some of the states was really quite unimpressive. Mm-hmm. And I think that maybe highlights in the mind of some people that this, the nature of this uh, model um not arguing that there shouldn't be state models. I mean, that's a much bigger constitutional matter. But on key aspects of our lives, uh, things like health, for example, things like infrastructure um, that that will help shape the future of our country, uh, that they really should be the domain of the federal government and not subject to uh, local government or f- uh, state government uh confusion in my mind and also sometimes quite disconnected and disjointed thinking 
So I'm a big proponent of that. I mean, I, I think that if we end up with a world where the relationship between federal government and state government is unchanged, then that will have been a failure mm-hmm. because the current situation highlights the need for big thinking, big nationhood thinking, not fragmented statehood thinking. Uh, and so I hope we see a movement to, um, for certain critical aspects of how we live as a, a society, that those belong in Canberra, not in the various state in the various states. Uh, probably one or two final questions because I know you've uh, got a full schedule. As an SME, uh, small business out in the economy at the moment, what are, what are the one or two key pieces of advice that you would like to share with them? Strongly advise every business, whether it's a very small business or a much larger business, uh, to think about the future. Uh, think about the opportunities that this crisis that we're in presents. And, and I know that that's not a mindset that many businesses and many people have had because we're dealing almost day to day with trying to get through this. But, you know, there's an old saying that don't waste a crisis and and so many businesses will change, so many industries will change for reasons that we've touched, talked on um, during this discussion, that there are, will be great opportunities to reposition, redesign, rethink how your business works. Um, of digitalization of technology is one, but I wouldn't, you know, focus, concentrate all the thinking on technology. But I look at some of the great restaurants that we have in our cities that that um, have, have survived over the course of the last two months by doing home deliveries. For example, now that would never have been part of their core business model, many of them, pre-COVID. But actually, you know, some of the business, the restaurants that I am aware of and, and order from, uh, are doing a lot of business on, on on home deliveries. So going forward, should the home delivery model be part of the core in in dining model? You know, so that's an example of where this has forced businesses to think about. Uh, actually, maybe there's there's more revenue streams that we can access rather than restricting ourselves to uh, in restaurant dining, for, for example. And there's other other numerous other examples. So I think think about the opportunity that that uh, that this crisis throws up, um, and and how you might be able to adapt your business uh, to seize that opportunity. Great advice. Thank you, Joseph. Um... It's been great catching up with you today again. Thank you very much. Are there any final thoughts you'd like to leave our viewers with, or our listeners with, I should say? Oh, no, listen, I think we, we're in, we are in a good position relatively as a country relative to so many other parts of the world. Uh, we're all, at least I, I believe we're all hoping that the political leadership will help navigate us out of this current still impasse that we're in as we're transcend, trying to transcend back to some degree of normality. But start thinking positively about the opportunities that, that the, the new world, post-COVID-19, so to speak, will, will present and, uh, and think positively about that. And, and think about, I think, think big about those opportunities and how, for example, we as a bank might be able to help. So I think that's the key for me is to, th- now that we've, Touchwood largely got through this. Um, let's now think about the, the opportunities that are right there because there are lots of opportunities out there. 
The company is the owner or licensee of all intellectual property rights in this podcast, including but not limited to the copyright and any rights in the designs. You are permitted to use the podcast for personal use, but not for commercial use, without a license from us. You may not make any recordings of or otherwise copy the podcast.